Attention all international medical students and graduates. Are you looking to improve your residency competitiveness and achieve your dream program match? Look no further. Introducing the 2023 IMG Roadmap course, the online program that will boost your personal and professional growth. This comprehensive course offers life cohort-based coaching from a seasoned expert, me, along with personalized feedback, templates, and even demos. You'll leave with a solid understanding of your personalized IMG journey and the skills you need to enhance it. You'll ditch the overwhelm, and the best part? You can learn at your own pace from anywhere in the world. Whether you're a first-year medical student or a graduate seeking concise, practical coaching to improve your CV, this is the perfect investment for a successful career in the U.S. The IMG Roadmap is here. Be the first to know when the doors open in April of 2023. Sign up right now at drninaloom.com forward slash waitlist. Again, that's drninaloom.com forward slash waitlist. The IMG Roadmap is the only podcast dedicated to coaching international medical graduates and success blueprints for this unique pathway. I am Dr. Nina Loom, your host, a previous IMG turned hospital medicine physician, healthcare administrator, speaker, and coach. I empower, encourage, and equip you with actionable steps that you can take towards the residency position of your dreams. Welcome, guys, to another episode of the IMG Roadmap Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Osunwa Paul. He has a very interesting background and story in general, and I can't wait to welcome him on the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Osunwa. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you, Dr. Lou. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm glad that you're here. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know quite a bit about you just by keeping up with you through different arenas, particularly social media. But can you tell us a little bit about your background? Surprise the people, because they're wondering, who are you? Why are you here? Are you an IMG? Are you not an IMG? And just tell us a little bit about your background. Awesome, I will do. So like Dr. Loom said, my name is uh, Paula Sinwa Jr. I'm from California, and I'm originally Nigerian by ethnicity. Both parents were born in Nigeria. By way of being an IMG, I used to be a nurse for three years before going to medical school. Um, I applied to many um, MD programs, and I got one interview that was at St. Louis University, and I got rejected the month before school started. So I continued working, and I applied, you know, the next cycle, and I applied to St. George's University in uh, Grenada, West Indies. I applied, I got in, and I was part of the AEP program, which is the Academic uh, Enrichment Program for people who transition from different careers and who are non-traditional, because I was a little bit older than I was 25 when I started. So I got into medical school, and I'm telling you, the first semester, I thought I wanted to quit because I left a good-paying job, and I'm here having to crack my brain, competing with people who are like 21 years old, 22 years old, whose brains have already been in the academic arena, they know how to study. So, you know, I was still trying to perform and be able to get through medical school well, because I always wanted, I always knew I wanted to be an anesthesiologist, um, actually, while I was at nursing school, kind of funny enough. And I kind of knew I wanted to do it. I shadowed anesthesiologist, and I knew I wanted to be a doctor, second semester to, to, to the last in nursing school. So, shadowed many doctors, 
So we're back on the medical school uh, train. So I'm in, I was in medical school, ended up becoming the president of the Student Government Association, ended up, uh, you know, advocating for my class and, you know, fighting for as much points as we needed and faculty discrepancies. Ended up winning the White Coat Award in my last semester on the island. That was my second year. Went into clinicals, performed well on step one and step two. I applied to 136 programs. Uh, you know, being an IMG, it's very hard to match any specialty. And, you know, applying anesthesia, and we were the first cohort of people that didn't have the live interviews because of COVID-19, we had the Zoom interviews. So a lot of the MDs and USDOs were going to, you know, apply multiple programs just like us because there was no added cost of trying to fly into an area, you know, no hotel costs, no plane costs. So I applied to 136 programs and I only got seven interviews and I was able to match to my number two spot. And, you know, that's how it happened. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that background with us. I mean, that, you know, you. just I've known about your story, like going from nursing, because you've shared about that before on your social media, like being a nurse and then going to medical school and then leaving from, you know, medical school and having this goal in mind from day one, like you want to be an anesthesiologist and that's what you were going to do and sort of charting your territory all along the way. And I think something that you said that really stood out to me was you knew you wanted to do anesthesia while you were in nursing school. And so even when you got that first rejection from the U.S. medical school, you still found another path. And when you went on that new path, you still kept it as your number one choice and you worked toward it. You started shadowing doctors. So it sounds like you were sowing your seeds way early on in your process. And I think that's something that really stood out when you were talking, because I was like, a lot of times INGs don't realize like you just don't like spring up out of nowhere wanting to do something. You start planting seeds from day one. Like even before yeah. the opportunity comes for like in your face, you start creating opportunities around that so that you're consistently being informed about the thing that you're exactly. seeking to do. Yeah. I really thought that was Absolutely. very brilliant. You also mentioned your involvement in like the student organizations, the student body. How was that of any advantage to you? So going in, you know, uh, before medical school, I was a parish secretary for my church. Being in nursing, you have to be able to collaborate with doctors, with pharmacy, with different um, entities in the hospital. So already, I already had that leadership skill and having another job before going to medical school already primed me for leadership in medical school. And that leadership role I took on in medical school was an advantage because, you know, being the president of the Student Government Association, I would have contact with the dean a lot. I would have contact with, you know, academic uh, vigilantes. I would have um, contact with professors and trying to organize our course load and what is fair and what should be dispensed on 10 tests and, you know, if there should be a curve. So actually being involved in that, I was able to kind of lead my class and kind of lead them to be successful because when you have a thousand students on the island and you have one professor right and that's one per, per professor per subject matter or you have multiple but you have one head professor per subject matter trying to dispense not only academic in, information but like the schematic of how a test is going to go that professor will be bombarded and not adequately give information to the whole class but where the student government stepped in, it was like a tier process. You had president, vice president, and each term had their own individual class coordinators 
And below that was like academic coordinator, you know, there was judicial coordinator for like, you know, campus issues. So it was a tiered process. So, you know, students won't be left out of the loop. So it kind of, you know, the students had to have another student's back. So we were kind of the, the gatekeepers. So it really, really helped uh, being a student advocate to make sure that people who were going to be lost in the system weren't going to be lost because the population load on campus was too, too high for administration to keep a handle of. Oh, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So it was almost like a professional career building experience as well in leadership is how you were able to exactly. leverage it. So because people are going to want to, they'll be wondering, right? Like our listeners are going to be wondering if they should be involved in those things to help increase their chances of matching. But it's not like a direct relationship. It's by virtue of doing those things, you are making professional relationships and building professional relationships that you could represent as a leadership position. It's really how you use that, those opportunities is what I'm hearing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I still have long lasting relationships with my clinical dean, and actually my dean of basic sciences now became the dean overall of the medical school. And we would have weekly meetings, and I still talk to him till today. We still talk about, you know, the curriculum, how things are going. And if I, if students reach out to me that wanting to go to SGU, since I have the in-depth information, and I've been talking with the dean ever since I was actually in term two, so first year of medical school, and I became the president in second year, until now, I'm able to give them a more bigger picture of what actually goes on that isn't actually shown when, you know, the school's advertised to you. So it also helped in, you know, residency because, you know, you're going to have, you know, it's when you're a PGY1, you're managed by your upper years, and then you have your attending. So being able to also lead your peers as well and also being helpful because, you know, Medicine's peer-to-peer learning. So having that extra, I would say, training, being in student leadership in medical school actually is helping me now and will help me when I become a senior resident. Wow. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Sounds very well thought out process for you. I'm really impressed that you were thinking about those things while you were in medical school. And now you're seeing how, obviously, it helps because you've already developed yourself in that kind of a leadership role to where taking on leadership in residency is even a lot easier because you've done it before. So let's talk a little bit about matching into anesthesia because it's one of the more, the one of the specialties that has fewer spots, even for U.S. students. And then when you add on the complication and in air quotes of being an IMG, (laughs) sometimes that could be even more difficult to achieve. And that's primarily because there's, there's fewer spots for anesthesia across the country. And there's always more people that want to get into anesthesia than there are available positions. I like to use that verbiage in describing it because people get so caught up on the word competitive that they mind block things, right? But if we really understand what competitive means, it means that there's not enough positions and that's why people can't all fit in. But that being said, it allows for where it's a lot more, you have to use objective standards to get into the specialty. There's a lot more rigorous applicant search and criteria in place. So can you walk us through what it takes to match anesthesia as an IMG? Yeah, so you laid it out perfectly in terms of there's limited spots. And you have all these people trying to go through a funnel. And sometimes not everybody's going to go through the funnel, including US, MD, DO, and IMGs, and non-US and US IMGs. 
Um, the process of matching into anesthesia, I would say personally, started from day one because I knew that I needed to get either average or above average scores on step one and step two. Lucky for these uh, new incoming MS2s, MS3s, their step one is pass-fail. So I knew that I needed to, to do that. That was the objective standard. Now, the subjective standards that I had that were going for me, I knew I had to get involved in some kind of activity while in medical school. That being, I had research. So that's also a good thing to have. I had student leadership involvement. That's also a good thing to have. Um, I, had, I was part of AMSA. American Medical Student Association. I was part of SNMA. So I was very involved because when you're applying to residency, they want to know that you're not only just, you know, very good at taking tests, that you're this smart person, but they want a doctor. And a doctor doesn't only hide in the lab. You have to be able to relate to people on many levels, socially, uh, medicine, economically, because, I mean, doctors are part of the leaders of society. So you have to be able to be proficient in what's happening in society. So I knew that I needed to have a high step one, high step two, and I also needed to be somewhat malleable in other factors that are subjective. So I had those going for me, and I also knew that it's gonna be hard to match. I knew this, I knew this going, I knew, I knew it wasn't gonna be a breeze. So my third year of medical school, COVID unfortunately hits, and I was supposed to have an elective in anesthesia, two-week elective, so I can secure an LOR. Because another objective parameter is that you need an LOR from an anesthesiologist, and then some programs require that you have an additional letter from a chair of a program, either from your school, if you were like a USMD school, whereby university hospitals have inbuilt residency programs and you know medical students flux through there, and they can get a letter through a anesthesia chair or you rotate at a hospital that has an anesthesia chair. I had none of those. So what was going for me were average to high step one and step two scores, my leadership qualities and all the things I was involved in, and also to applying to almost every single program. So as an IMG, you have to now assess yourself. What parameters are working for you? What parameters are working against you? If you have one side of the equation that's working against you, you need to buffer up the other side. If everything across the board is working for you, you're very lucky. The next step is now to ace the interview because they, they have not chosen you for an interview because they like everything that, they, that they've seen, but they want to now make sure that this person that, that is coming in, are they going to be able to fit into our program? Are they going to be able to be relatable? Are they conversational? You know, do they have qualities that we like? So once that person is able to hit all those objectives, it's still a challenge being an IMG, but there's a good chance that they that they will match. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that we are moving into the era of medicine where we're they're going to be looking at 360 degrees, right? They're going to be looking at the applicant yeah. across the board, and I think the whole push of going from pass from a score in step one to pass fail is really to drive that change. And you have to be multifaceted. You have to have more than just a score. You need to have experiences. You need to have professional experiences. You need to have uh, leadership experiences, volunteer experiences. You need to tailor your application to show your interest and your commitment to the specialty as well. 
And so those are all really important factors that I just need to incorporate, right? Like we really need to reconsider these things because before we all thought, okay, we just need to get a 240, right? And 240 was going <laughs> to get us in the door. And then we're now we're yep. seeing, well, 240 is becoming obsolete for step one, but step two, it still matter. But for step one, yep. it wouldn't be reported anymore. So you need more than just a number to stand out. And I think yeah. that's, that's the word you're giving out to students. So can you tell us how you were able to manage your medical education in that COVID time? Like how, oh, I mean, yeah. it sounds like it affected your, you know, things you had planned out, but how were you still able to plan for application despite those interruptions? Yeah, that's a very good question. So uh, let me give a little background. Actually, I, um, we were dismissed out of clinicals March 17th. 2020. And I was, I was in my site clinical. And actually, I was supposed to go to Nigeria in the middle of my site clinical. And I worked out a deal with the site clinical director. I was supposed to go for two weeks and then make it up with more hours front-loaded and back-loaded. Unfortunately, um, that didn't happen. So now my anesthesia rotation was supposed to happen two weeks after that. That was obliterated. We were all just moved into virtual clinicals for almost three months before we were put back into the hospital. So I'm going to take ownership of this. I could have definitely gotten an anesthesia letter. And I'm a person that is able to look myself in the mirror and analyze and say, Paul, you got to take advantage of your resources. So, you know, there was COVID, but there was a way. I was put back. After three months, we were put back into the live clinicals. And while the pandemic was going on, actually, while we were virtual, you know, being an ICU nurse, I was able to pick up the shifts because the hospitals were in high demand of nurses and we had a surge. So I ended up picking PRN. So a PRN meaning like as needed shifts in the ICU at USC Verdigo Hills in Glendale, California. Sort of picking up shifts there. And I could have networked with anesthesiologists there, which I did. I actually shadowed some cases, but I could have networked a way whereby I was able to pick up an LOR and it could have worked out. Also, we began surgery right after that. And I could have also networked there to pick up an LOR from an anesthesiologist in between cases and probably come in extra shifts on the weekends to work with a you know, particular anesthesiologist. So what I'm trying to get with that I didn't take advantage of what was presented to me, um, any IMG that's listening to this podcast, if you're presented with opportunities and you just kind of go in a straight line, but you're not able to bend and take advantage of what, what's right next to you in that arena, you got to be able to, because you'll look back and say, if I was able to take advantage of like that anesthesiologist that was in the room and network with him during my surgery rotation, because in my anesthesia rotation, it was, it was non-existent. I could have gotten maybe four more interviews. So even though COVID did obliterate the anesthesia rotation, I could have still been able to grab that letter. I like how introspective that you are and how you're able to analyze a situation, especially when you're the one involved and you're able to say, hey, I could have done this differently. I could have been better because yes, you still made it into your specialty of choice, but you're telling us 
don't do what I did. Do the right thing. Do the thing that will likely work to your benefit. I could have networked better. I could have, you know, really set my foot down and maybe I would have matched in another location or in a location that's home or whatever. But what you're telling us is you can look back at your scenario and say, yeah, I, I successfully matched, but here's how I could improve. And I think that speaks a lot to the mindset that you have and the mindset that I want our listeners to really grasp. Because a lot of times when my students are listening to this podcast, they're just looking for tips. They're just looking for things to take home, right? What can I do? It's like, it's a formula. They're looking for a formula, right? But what, I'm, what I want them to see is that there is also something to be said about character. There's something to be said about integrity. There's something to be said about being able to analyze a situation and be truthful with yourself, okay? Like there's something to be said about looking back on a scenario and say, here is how I failed at this and taking responsibility. Because I, I believe that you cannot have success without those things being in the picture as well. Otherwise, you're going to have somebody fooling you or, you know, giving you false motivation, false hopes, when indeed there, it's a lot more convoluted situation than that. And so I want them to also take home the character behind Dr. Osunwa, just not what he's telling us to do, but the kind of person that he is. Because until you as an IMG listening, until you're critical about your situation, and you can sit down and say, I haven't done this and this. I should do this. Okay. Yeah. Until you're able to tell yourself and be honest with yourself, instead of DMing us, asking us what you should do when you know what to do, <laughs> you know exactly, exactly what to do, but you yeah. want somebody to tell you again. Right. Yeah. So yeah. taking initiative, analyzing situations, being critical of yourself and saying, how can I do better? I think you should take that home with you today if you're listening. It's very huge. I mean, we are our own uh, worst critic. And when we speak to ourselves and we analyze our situation, no one is going to tell us the truth more than ourselves. You know what I mean? And in order to succeed, we have to fail. And upon those failures, we add successes to those lessons that we've learned. So that's how I've kind of lived my life, you know, being an athlete in college you know, competing, you know, winning some meets, losing some meets, improving upon those, you know, being a nurse before, being in situations, learning from those mistakes I made, even with relationships, you know, with friends, you know, with girlfriends, how did I, the way I did this this way, make sure this doesn't happen again, you know, and ways you can improve upon them you know it's very important throughout all all of life because you're going to always fail you're not going to win every day <laughs> every day you're not going to win I, I still don't win today <laughs> some days i lose some days i win but i build upon it and i learn right absolutely you know we're not going to win at everything but the key is in no. you know self-correcting the key is in Definitely. being persistent being consistent with ourselves right I mean, this is invaluable advice, guys. And if you're listening, you better be taking some notes here. So, Dr. Osunwa, let's just talk a little bit about, yeah. you know, some some of the the things that you've been able to achieve. You know, as a, it's very rare. I don't get a lot of people who had a career before that are IMGs that go to the island and start over and then come back into this process. But I know that there are some people that are listening that can relate to that, or they're in a position where they're starting out and they're like, man, this seems so far off, right? Like that first semester yeah. of school thinking like, 
oh my God, what did I do? I had a well-paying job and here I am, like you said, cracking my head open to, to learn this material. Looking back, do you regret any of that? No, I don't. I do not regret leaving my career as a nurse going to medical school. I would be lying and saying that there are some days I do think about if I stayed, how my life would have been. For example, and I'm not, you know, you know, financially driven as, as, as a means to, to doing something. Granted, I'm in residency now and I'm making half of what I used to make as a nurse. So I look at these, you know, travel nursing posts and I see that some people are making seven, 8,000 a week. And I'm like, wow, this must be really fun. You know, people are, you know, buying houses, they're going on huge trips, they're doing lots of grand things. Sometimes I'm going to be honest with the audience, that does set in. But then I look at the bigger picture and I say, okay, I went to school, one, to do more for my patients as a whole, because I'm able to take care of my patients with more information. The more information you have, the more you're able to do with that information, right? Secondly, I went to school for an investment in myself. It was an investment of knowledge acquisition. So all the questions that I had in my previous career as a nurse, thank God for medical school, they were answered. And furthermore, in residency, those questions and those answers are now applied in real time. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy with where I am now. And I know that after residency, you know, I, I, see, I see you enjoying Dr. Noom and it's, it's, uh, I see your social media and, you know, life is good on the other side. And now you're back in fellowship. So, you know, it's, um, the, uh, there's, there's, there's big stars ahead. There's the sun at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, I know yeah. uh, like Yeah, medicine is one big sacrifice, but it's so rewarding when you go through all of these different phases of medicine and you come out on the other side because it's something that you, I can't put in words, but there's something to be said about taking care of your patient holistically and being that person yeah. that brings them to a solution. Or in your case, you know, when you finally have a patient that has a really severe illness or ailment that needs surgery and you're able to put them down to sleep and wake them back up safely. Like those are huge milestones that you have for the rest of your life. And so these years of like sewing into them, yes, they're painful. Yes, they're hard. Yes, they demand of you, especially if you're coming from a position where you're taking a pay cut. But yeah. it is so much more rewarding on the other side when you can offer these services to your patients and do it safely, correctly, and really offer people high quality care. Like there's nothing that beats that to where if you're in that position and you're thinking, man, it's so long, it's this, is that. Because I get a lot of people, especially women. Okay, I'm going to pick on some women right now. Especially <laughs> oh, women. Women, physicians, women, medical students, if you're listening, listen up intently here. Okay? The fact <laughs> that you have a uterus doesn't mean that you can't have a career if you want to, okay? If you don't want to have that's one, that's absolutely. different. And if your career is going to take four years, six years to achieve, and you have the ability to do it, don't let your uterus be the reason you stand in the way. Uh, that's, that's my, that's, I'm going to leave it at that. If you got it, you got it. If you didn't get it, that's on you. But, <laughs> you know, but I figure I hear that a lot. You know, we let all these things hold us back. And some people will yeah. say, well, Dr. Yeah. Lim, you're saying that because you're not a mom or you, you don't know what it's like to have kids and to do all these things. Maybe you're right, but I'm just going to tell you right now, if there's a dream in your heart that you want to pursue in medicine, 
whatever you're forfeiting right now, it could result in way more joy, way more career and personal fulfillment if you actually pursue it. And we're not here to convince you otherwise. You can do what you want to do, but hopefully you can see from Dr. Suma's story that he invested in himself, took a step back or what looked like a step back in order to get 10 steps ahead. And I hope that it encourages somebody else today. I hope so too. I hope so too. Never, never see the end as a means as not to do something. I mean, just like Dr. Loom said, I mean, I went to medical school with someone who was 40 in her second year. She had a kid that was like three years younger than me. Wow. <laughs> um, so wow. the kid was 23 years old. She had a kid at 17. She came to the island with two kids. One was three, one was five. Her husband came with her. And they were just trucking along. And now she, she matched into OBGYN. She's in a four-year residency, and they're just trucking along. But she's a fighter. Her name is uh, Nina. Nina Snowden. Just, just like you. Her yeah. name is Nina. Yeah, yeah. I know Dr. Snowden. <laughs> she's been on the show. She's oh. been on the podcast before. She's also, oh, she's also been a, a guest speaker, actually, during my online training program that I have for IMGs, okay. IMG Roadmap Course, she's also been a guest speaker on there. And she's, I mean, she's a boss. Like she had her she's own practice in nutrition yes. before moving to the Caribbean to start over. Right. And uh-huh. I mean, yes. it's amazing. It's amazing how she's able to do all the things that she's done and still pursue her passions. And we'll give her a shout Absolutely. out here and in the show notes as well. But I mean, those are people that are showing oh, yeah. us day in, day out that you don't stop or you don't not pursue your passion because of your age or because of your career now or because of something yep. else. Yep. That woman is a fighter. Like I give her lots of respect. And even in medical school, she was she was making, you know, good grades. And I'm like, you know what? Fight on me now. <laughs> right, right. It was beautiful and refreshing to see. I was like, yeah. You're yeah. a, you are a real wonder. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's pivot a little bit into the, the things that you would recommend for an IMG to consider, including in their anesthesia application. So what are the things that you think would make an anesthesia program director, anesthesiologist program director, look at an application and be like, this is the kind of person I want to, to interview? So, you know, everybody has that, you know, now that step one is pass fail, so it's going to be pass fail step one. Everyone, you know, baseline would have an average step two score, right? Some might be below average, some might be above average. But there has to be something in your application that just rings a zinger. And that zinger for, for good, right? So something right. that's different than everybody else that kind of grabs their attention, you know, that other people might not do or might not have. And, you know, maybe no, not everyone has something different, but if you're able to pull out something of yourself, something that you've done, something that you're involved in that is different than many other applicants, that is attention grabbing. And with that, you know, you'll be able to really wrap, you know, program directors in, PDs, uh, you know, anesthesia heads in, and they'll be like, hmm, okay, this is very different. They can add something different to our program that we're, that we're needing, you know? Besides all the other regular factors of, you know, step one, step two, and all the, you know, you know, LORs and stuff like that, but something different. And it's kind of hard to figure out what's different about you, per se. For me, I was a college athlete, second, second career, 
that was different because you don't have many prior college athletes trying to, you know, apply the anesthesia or anything. Usually they're going to PMNR and ER sports medicine, something like that. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Like they're, you know, usually my students want to know, like, you know, how many experiences do I need? Like clinical rotations, how many letters do I need? Or, you know, what, what is my personal statement supposed to look like? You know, how long should my ERAS application be? And, and what's considered a valuable experience for the specialty? Do you have any of such tips for us? So I would say for work experience, at least one or two. Uh, you know, a lot of people, if you're IMG, right? A lot of people go to medical school at 17, 18 years old, and it's a six-year program, and they graduate around 22, 23. So a lot of the times, their first work experience is when they finally get residency. But they might not have they might not have actual work experience, you know, and that might be people who are actually in foreign countries like Pakistan and such. But let's say you're you're a person who is going to the Caribbean, that is like a U.S. IMG. I would say definitely scribing is also good because you learn how to be proficient in soap notes and writing H and P's. So working that and actually using that as, as experience to help you in clinical years would be great. Even being a pharmacy tech, a patient care tech, uh, a CNA, at least you'll learn hospital function. Right? So there's things in the hospital that you already know that goes on. Being a pharmacy tech, at least you know about dosages. So something that's applicable, even non-applicable things that are not medicine related, but you've worked, it shows that you are able to take a job serious, have a sense of ownership, and be able to report to someone. That's, a, that, that's essentially why they want, you know, work experience. Just those basic criteria. Are you governable? <laughs> kind of, kind of, kind of sounds militant, but are you governable? Are you able to work with others? That, that aside, research. Research is great, especially for anesthesia. You want at least, you don't have to have any. I had two, but there are people that get in with none. But, it, you know, it always looks good to have. If you're a surgery applicant, you want at least two. Anesthesia, it looks good they have two, but you don't have to have any. And scores, you know, you want that pass on step one. And the average for um, US IMG that I know was 237. I think um, average for non-US IMG was 239. So I'm always a person that you want to always study to your max and you want to be able to really, you know, check yourself and how you're performing. And you always want to own your academic mistakes. And in the event that you are pushing yourself to the point whereby you're still not hitting those marks, you want to also seek resources, things like tutoring companies, other friends who are smarter than you. I actually went to New York to study with the, with the chair of the Honor Society of my medical school for step two. I took a three-week hiatus from California, took a leave for three weeks from my med, 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 medical school and they, they allow you to take like, like leave time. And I went up there and I was like study with them because I knew that, okay, Paul, you need someone strong around you <laughs> to help you with step two. So as long as you're able to maximize those objectives, step one, step two, maximize your sub subjective. Uh, those are things that will really grab the attention of PDs and, you know, get you an interview into a program. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks for those tips. Hopefully, guys, you guys are taking notes so you can, you know, apply those into your life. Doesn't mean that if you don't have this experience, you can't get into anesthesia. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that if you're looking for opportunities that you can leverage, 
That's how those are some that you could consider incorporating into your process. So, you know, how is residency going for you? Can you give us a little bit about what a day in the life <laughs> of an astrology resident is? Yes. So I'm actually, so I'm a PGY1. So we don't enter the OR until your PGY2 year. And uh, PGY2 year starts the uh, clinical anesthesia year one. And uh, clinical anesthesia year one goes for three years. So usually your first year can either be a prelim or a transitional year. I'm in a program whereby all four years are built in the same program. It's built in the same house, essentially. So it depends what rotation I'm on. Currently, I am in my ICU slash pulmonology month. So a day for me in this month, would for the first two weeks, I was, I'd wake up usually. I know you see me, Dr. Loom, at times. I wake up at 3.30 a.m. I go to the gym. Yeah. I work out. <laughs> yeah. It's documented, so it, it actually happens. But mm-hmm. I've been backing off. I mean, I'm able to sleep in later now because we're in clinic for pulmonology. So I'll wake up at 3, get there at 3.30, work out for two hours, leave the gym at 5.30. We start rounding at 8.30. So I got a pre-round on the ICU patients. Um, we round from 8.30 until 10, stop for a break. We got to go to the Bronx lab, Bronx patients, come back grab lunch at 12, 12 to 12.30, we eat, then we go back, we round from 1 to 1.30, and then, you know, ICU, as you're rounding, you're also turning off fires. <laughs> so as you're rounding, you're turning off fires with your adjacent patients. Maybe they need a line because they're crashing, so they need pressures, you know? So you got to immediately divert from rounds, go put that subclavian line, go put that art line, intubate someone, come back to rounds. So usually we try to tidy things up and by three o'clock we're, we're out of there. Now that I'm in clinic, we'll usually start the clinic at around 10. So I'm able to wake up at seven, mosey my way to the gym at 7.30, work out till nine, leave the gym at nine. And the hospital that I'm at, it's a private hospital. So our program, we rotate at multiple hospitals in our first year. So I'm, I'm able to get breakfast in the doctor's dining room. <laughs> so I'm able to get breakfast there, and they have protein for us, protein shakes. So I'm able to load up on protein shakes, put them in my bag, eat breakfast there, walk up to clinic. I'll see a lot of patients that have COPD, bronchitis, asthma, um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And, you know, learning baseline pulmonary diseases make you a better anesthesiologist because you'll be able to understand and how to read a CT scan. You're not, your mind is not always surgically geared. You'll actually be able to know how to manage a patient. And a lot of people in surgical specialties like ours only know how to manage patients in interval times, not for like a long period of time. So it actually gets your mind able to see a patient as a whole. So I'm really liking this month and it's going well so far. So that's a, that, that's a, that, that's a day in a regular anesthesiologist, like, you know, ICU rotation. Now as a PGY2 in your CA one year, I can give you a glimpse. You usually get to the hospital by five. You'll have your cases for the day around three or four cases. But I run three cases, sorry. Before the day starts, you will talk to your attending physician about those cases. And you usually assigned two, two. So if one attending has two patients, the other one might have one. You'll call them the night before. You'll come up with an anesthesia plan. And your plan is tailored to the underlying diagnosis of the patient, what kind of surgery they're going for. So 
so usually in, in the day, you'll start at five or start at seven, and then you'll do your cases. And depending upon the, uh, the staggering or the schedule of the OR, you'll have to relieve you know, your fellow colleague with breaks. If you're on call, you, you got to wait for traumas or wait for emergent surgeries. And you'll probably leave like at 5 p.m. And then the same cycle again for the next day. You have a list of patients that you're going to do for the next day. You, gotta, you have to call your attending physician. And you're usually six days, on, five days on with two days off. If you're on call and you're there at till 10 o'clock, you have the next day totally off. So it's not like a post-call day where whereby you're, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're there till, till 6 a.m. the next day and then you're off. No. For our program, if you're there till 10 p.m., you automatically get the next day off, which is pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, that's some that's some intense stuff. And I but I like that you said something there again, which I'm always about the mindset, right? Like I listen to people and I like I dive into what they're saying. But you realize that what you're doing now is positioning you for how you practice when you go into the OR. And so even though you're on a palm month or critical care month, you are also paying attention because even if it's not your specialty of choice, you're using that because you know that you're going to have patients that you have to put under who are going to have lung diseases. And so you're paying attention. You're sowing some seeds now because it's going to be beneficial for you later on. Guys, that alone shows you the kind of mindset that it takes to succeed because it tells you this person consistently does things early on, right? does take yes, action definitely. early on that will build them up for their career later on. And if there's nothing else you've gotten from this episode with Dr. Osunwa, I hope that you, you take this home with you because he's showing us how he has made it this far, despite being an IMG, despite giving up his career in nursing, going to the Caribbean, successfully matching into a specialty that is considered highly competitive. And now even within that, he's still applying those same success principles. So I hope that you guys are not just listening and looking for tips and tricks, like I say, but you're also learning about how that person made it to where they're at. And he's telling you right now. Dr. Sunwa, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. If an IMG wants to connect with you, how can they reach out to you? Where can they find you? Give us your plug. So you can always reach out to me at Prince, so P-R-I-N-C-E underscore Chiso, C-H-I-S-O. Um, you can always ask me questions. I'll I'll be more inclined to answer questions that are more anesthesia and surgery related, but I'm willing to answer any other questions too. Um, I'm an open book, and I can also reach out to friends who are in other specialties that can also guide you accordingly. But if you could take one thing away from this listening to me, I would say never give up. I had people who would tell me, even doctors that would tell me, are you sure you want to go to a Caribbean medical school? I know people that hopped from island to island and never made it. And they would try to sow that seed of doubt in me. I would always say, be realistic with yourself, but also don't hesitate to also believe in yourself and be surprised with what you can do. Always go that extra step to wow yourself because you'll look back and be like, wow, I actually did it. Yes, you actually did do it. So always keep that in mind. And how can they reach out to you? What's your Instagram handle or? The, 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 you can all, uh, the handle is at Prince underscore Chiso. That's in, in Instagram handle. Okay. So you can reach out to me there. Um, that's, that, that's an easier place to reach out to me. 
You can also email me as well. I still use my uh, my medical school email. So it's P as in Paul. So it's P, my last name, O-S-U-N-W-A at S-G-U dot E-D-U. So you can, so there's two methods you can reach out to me via Instagram. And that's where I get most of my people that reach out to me for medical school advice and residency advice because it's more of an easier platform. I don't usually use Facebook for like, you know, medical school and residency stuff. So just Instagram and email. Those are the two methods. Awesome. We'll have all your information in the show notes. We'll have your email and your Instagram handle, all hyperlinked guys. So go down to the show notes and click on it. While you're in the show notes, you'll also notice that we are allowing you to be able to join the wait list for the MG Robot course that comes up this spring. If you're interested, just sign up down below. Thank you so much for having us or for coming on the show, Dr. Sunwa. We appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate you guys too. Good luck with everybody. Everything goes. Thanks. Look at you. I'm so proud of you for listening until the very end. And because of that, you deserve a reward. And I want you to go right now to drninaloom.com and download any of my free ebooks, whether it's for electives or clinical rotations, or even just whatever trials come your way as you navigate your IMG journey. Stay tuned for another episode coming up next.